Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, if you could find your seats and uh, sit down. Thank you all very much uh, for coming. Uh, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event, uh, Financing a Global Climate Deal, which is part of the LSE Festival, which is uh, itself called Shape the World, which runs from yesterday through to Saturday, 7th of March, and is a whole year of activities. My name is Nick Robbins. I'm delighted to be here with you. I'm Professor in Practice for Sustainable Finance at the LSE's Grantham Research Institute. I'm very pleased to be here with this uh, great panel um, to work out how we are going to finance the global climate deal this year. Um, from my right, Anne Pettifor, uh, Director of Prime, author of the Case for the Green New Deal, and also author of the uh, very foresightful book published in 2006 called The Coming First World Debt Crisis. So Anne has form. Um, Steve Waygood, um, next on my right, Chief Responsible Investment Officer at Aviva Investors, a real leader in the investment world about how to drive sustainable finance. Uh, Gian Piero Nacci, uh, on my left, is Deputy Director of Energy Efficiency and Climate Change at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The Transition Bank, a real pioneer in moving money, particularly in the central and Eastern European and emerging economies. And then uh, we have Ria Marie Thomas, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the new UK Green Finance Institute, which is not an institute in the LSE sense, but is really a market-creating agency for green finance in the UK and uh, internationally. So we have a, a great panel, um, and we're really focusing on how we harness the hundreds of trillions of dollars of pounds of yen that are in the global financial system for a global climate deal, particularly a global climate deal which will come together at the COP26 uh, climate summit, which the UK will be hosting this November in uh, Glasgow. Many things will come together in that agenda around finance. Developing countries will be looking for greater flows of finance to drive their clean transition and make themselves resilient to the growing impacts of climate change. All countries will need to work on how uh, the hundreds of trillions in the financial system can become fully aligned with climate security to meet the goals of the Paris uh, Agreement. Now, what we see in the financial world is that never before have so many investors, so many banks, so many central banks actually started to commit to make their core operations aligned with climate change. It really is uh, quite uh, extraordinary. Uh, but the question today, I think, for this evening is whether these commitments are enough and how do we actually accelerate uh, this, this action. And I mean it, it is literally uh, a question. And before, because before uh, I ask the distinguished panel for their views, I want to get a sense of what you think. I know it's half past seven in the evening. You might be a little bit sleepy. But I'm going to ask you to engage your, your brains. You were given a little keypad as you came in. Please uh, pick it up. And I'd like you to think about the question which will now uh, appear on the screen. A nice binary question. Do you think the COP26 will make the necessary breakthrough in terms of financing a global climate deal? Uh, and please start voting now. A for yes, B for no. And um, we'll give you a few more seconds. It seems clear. Is it, there's no chance for don't knows here. Has everybody had a chance to vote? Right, fantastic. So COP26 will uh, make the necessary breakthrough. 70% of you uh, say yes, and 83% of you remain to be convinced. So, panel, we have a little bit of work uh, to do. 
Um, so thank you very much uh, for that. Um, what we'll do is we'll have a couple of rounds of questions from the panel. Then there'll be a chance for you to ask uh, questions. You know the drill. Say your name. It's polite so people know who they're listening to and keep it nice and short. Thank you very much. So, Anne, if I can uh, start with you, author of the Green New Deal, which really has been talking about the need for really systemic change of mobilising finance to tackle climate change. Right. Can you give a sense of what you think is really needed at, at this point? Well, first of all, yes, thank you very much. And, um, yeah, there's uh, just simply two sources of finance for a global financing deal. The one source is credit, and the, other, the second source is existing savings, right? That's the only, those are the only two places we can go to to raise the finance. And credit is available at a macro level, if you like, from central banks with their specific clients, bankers, banks, financial institutions and governments, and at a more micro level, if you like, from high street banks. And credit is available, as we know, in very large quantities when the uh, situation demands it. So a thousand billion pounds was found overnight to bail out the financial system in 2009, and quite rightly so, in my view. So the question then is, you know, where do we, how do we mobilize that credit and how do we mobilize those existing savings? That's the task that we face. We know it can be done. We know that today, for example, the world's finance ministers got together on a call, which is really very welcome at last. They're beginning to talk about coordinating, and that it's quite possible for them to coordinate and create the finance that is needed. We know also that there's masses of existing savings in asset management funds, in pension funds, in investment banks, and so on. There's no shortage of it. For me, the really, really big, there are two big questions. The first question is that the, the international financial system has been globalized and is operated under private authority. It's managed by private actors in the capital markets, and they are dysfunctional, and they cannot respond to the, a crisis like the climate crisis or indeed the crisis of a pandemic. They're just they're not able to do that. It's not in their interest to do that. So the first challenge we have is to ensure that the international financial system is once again brought under public authority, is once again, a governments are once again put in the driving seat of the monetary system. Now we know it can be done because we've done it before. In 1933, the very first thing that Roosevelt did on the night of his inauguration, in, on the 6th of March 1933, was to dismantle the then globalized financial system under private authority, known as the gold standard, demanded overnight that the banks hand over their gold and that no longer were, was Wall Street going to be in the driving seat of the American economy. And that began the process of dismantling the gold standard. And he did that overnight, literally. And he did it with the acquiescence at the time of Wall Street. But that's our first challenge. Our first challenge is to restore the international financial system to oversight by public authority. And the second challenge is this. For me, the, the question of raising the finance is really not the problem. The really big problem is how to spend it. That's the really, that's the really naughty problem, is how to spend it. Do we have, for example, the skilled workforce that we need to transform our, um, our, our, our residential properties and make them more energy efficient. In Britain, we don't. 
How do we start? Where do we start? You know, do we start training? Do we have the materials? And so on and so forth. And we do, have, do we have the political will as well? Uh, for me, the very big problem is how to spend the existing savings that are already there. In, and we, I just want to be clear about this. Money originates as credit, and savings are a consequence of credit, and consequence of that credit being invested in economic activity which generates savings. And there's loads of savings. We know there's about 40 billion in British pension funds. There's 80 billion in, 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 in big asset management funds at least. And there's far more than that floating around in the world with nowhere to go that is safe for those investors at the moment. And I'm generalizing, but that is a problem. So the big problems are how to restore the international financial system to public authority to pursue public goals like, for example, the survival of the planet. And secondly, how to spend the money. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Anne. So, Steve, you work at Aviva, which is managing much of this, many of the billions of this, the savings, tens of billions on behalf of ordinary individuals, pension funds, and, and, and so on. What's your diagnosis of, of the situation? Do you, do you think we need this level of uh, systemic change? Is the system working? What, what can we do? Um, the system is definitely broken. It is definitely not working. Um, we run roughly 450 million billion at Aviva. I work for Aviva Investors, the subsidiary, which is about 350 billion under management. Um, there is absolutely no question that climate change is the world's biggest contemporary market failure. Uh, we have been saying that for over a decade. Others are now also saying that. The way the system was designed, in some cases, hundreds of years ago, um, of course, they didn't have to worry then about climate change. So to say the Bretton Woods institutions aren't fit for purpose is unfair because they weren't designed for this purpose. But it is true that our multilateral system is failing us, that our global governance structure is um, not fit for purpose in relation to climate change, that the regulation of securities finance, of um, insurance, of banking, wasn't built to deal with climate change. And we need to rethink the whole thing. We need to have a, a, the new mindset that we have around climate risk, be it physical risk or transition risk. Physical risk is runaway climate change, the catastrophic consequences that that will cause. We did a study with the Economist Intelligence Unit um, called the Value at Risk back in 2015. The worst scenario was six degrees by 2100. That concluded the value at risk was 43 trillion. Trillion would be wiped off the, the stock of global capital, which... There's different figures for this, but it's roughly a third of the stock of manageable capital or managed capital. So it's clearly, physical risk is clearly profound. There is also transition risk. If we move to the Paris Agreement too fast, too quickly, some of your pensions, savings and investments could be stranded. And there is a study by the Financial Times recently, the Lex column, the very flinty-hearted Lex column, this isn't some kind of environmental campaigner, that suggested about a trillion would be wiped off. So the system was never designed to deal with climate change. Indeed, it actually exacerbates it. The two biggest problems with it, firstly, it currently pays many businesses to go way beyond Paris. I can put it that way. The way that businesses are rewarded doesn't internalize the externalities. I can say that jargon here at LSE. <laughs> There's very few audiences that I can ever say that to. Um, but clearly, the externalities are not internalized in corporate balance sheets and their cash flows. 
we need to not just rethink finance, we need to rethink the real economy and make sure that the external costs are actually internalized because it's only when they are that the valuation work of the markets will pump capital in the right direction. So the, the biggest problem is, one, the real economy is not properly structured to deliver, to deliver Paris, and then, two, the financial services sector needs to be completely rethought. Um, at the heart of it is discount cash flow analysis. You will all be aware of what a DCF is and how that works. You'll be aware that it ignores externalities, that it discounts future generations, and that often the terminal value will assume all things will continue to grow forever. We have millions of investors making billions of investment decisions each year with trillions of assets under management, all of which ignore that one planet problem. This is not clever. Now, we also need to rethink prudential regulation and so on and so on. So, as you can hear, I am not arguing that the market left uncorrected will lead to an optimal outcome for society. Those that do, I find utterly ridiculous, particularly post the financial crisis. Steve, thank you. Right, so we, we, it sounds that like we do have a big challenge to, to face, and so maybe the voting was on the money at the beginning then. So, Jean Piero, um, EBRD Transition Bank, part of a whole family of national development banks, uh, multilateral development banks, international development banks, which have a critical role to play, because we've heard clearly uh, markets, uh, money in markets is not fl flowing automatically, and, and in many cases there are missing markets particularly in the, the economies you're yes. working in. Um, and there's a, there's a real gap in terms of building up the ecosystems of finance and linking that to the real economy. So maybe you get a sense of sort of your view. We've had a sort of uh, macro view, uh, investment capital markets view, but a sort of development bank, development finance role, particularly in the, the, what, what this means for emerging economies in the world. Thank you, Nick, and thank you for the invitation to speak tonight. Um, First of all, uh, uh, we're talking about dysfunctional uh, uh, financial system, and indeed, uh, you know, ultimately, the multilateral development banks are part of this system. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've been working uh, for at least uh, over a decade, in fact, on, on trying to bring together the development agenda and the climate agenda. And I think we've been operating ar around three main directions. One is uh, uh, trying to create uh, well-functioning markets and create the conditions for the markets to provide the price signals. Uh, one example is the work we're doing on carbon markets. We, uh, we've been working at the early stage in developing the carbon markets. Today we're working on uh, uh, Article 6 instruments. We think that uh, carbon pricing around Article 6 can provide the market signals and can also lead to market gains. One example, we've done a study at EBRD. Uh, working in our region, we, we work in Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union, North Africa, and Turkey, and Western Balkans. Uh, the gains through a collaborative uh, carbon market approach will lead to over 50 billion savings and market gains uh, over, over the period up to 2050. So this is very important, functioning markets. Another dimension is about the financial risk discipline and uh, the creation of the financial instruments that can link the green investments with the financial, with the capital market. One example, uh, again, the multilateral development banks have been kick-starting the market for green bonds. We created, in fact, the criteria and the early development of this, of this market. At DBRD, you know, quite proudly, we issued last year the first ever uh, climate resilient bonds. We have issued recently a green transition bonds with, again, the idea to bring, you know, again, multilateral development banks operate in the middle-income countries and developing countries to, to link the capital markets with this kind of a... Uh, uh, with, these, uh, with these countries. Uh, and the third dimension, I think, is the 
acceleration, well, the development and acceleration of, uh, of, uh, of the introduction of best practice when it comes to uh, standards and when it comes to, um, uh, again, risk discipline. A couple examples there. One is, is the work on, uh, on the alignment with the Paris Agreement. We've been working collaboratively in developing an approach where we, uh, uh, which we presented last year uh, at the COP, uh, which determine a bit the conditions and the elements that would allow us to determine you know, our, when our financial flows can be uh, considered aligned. Another example is just transition. It's a big area of, of work for all MDBs, and not only for the MDBs. And we are now working on uh, how to find uh, the right uh, instruments and the right channels to integrate just transition consideration in our financing, and especially in our policy work. Great. Thanks, Champion. To you, Riamari, um, 20 years in the city, um, investment banking and so on, now leading this new uh, institute, the Green Finance Institute. What's your sense about how we use the UK's position in the financial system and green finance to sort of make a difference in the, ne in the next six months as we go up towards COP? Uh, thanks, Nick, and thanks for framing the question that way, actually, because um, as I was reflecting on what the panellists said, um, we do need to try and find an interim solution working with the system. I agree the system is broken, and I agree with you, Anne, that a far more radical revolutionary solution would help, and given the urgency of the crisis, um, make, is definitely something that we should be discussing. But we are where we are today. The market and its invisible hands does not have green fingers. So what do we do? I'd love to have said that that was my original quote, but I nicked it off something else. Sorry. They should have copyrighted it. I do think it's very good. Recycling is a bit. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, so, you know, to answer the question of, you know, what do we need to do to accelerate green finance? We, the simple answer is we need to embed climate science into everyday financial decision making. And that is what a lot of the focus has been on over the past well, probably decade, but specifically since the TCFD was launched, it's been very much on greening finance. It's been on trying to look at financial stability, recognizing that this is the largest, the single greatest systemic risk to financial stability. We now have over 50 central banks and monetary authorities all working together on the network of greening financial system, looking at all the levers that they can use as regulators in the view of what is effectively market failure um, in order to try and make sure that we, we, don't lead, we don't run into yet another Minsky moment that we saw in 2008, although this time it would be a climate Minsky where we realise that we have completely mispriced assets. Um, but sometimes in the discussion about greening finance and financial stability, we do miss out the point that I think everyone has made so far, which is this is actually about the real economy. It's about climate stability. It's about actually getting money to work now where we need it in our homes and our transport system and our energy system and our agricultural system and the whole lot. Um, and that's where I think uh, we in the UK do have some quite interesting lessons to share with the rest of the world, if that doesn't sound horribly patronizing. Um, it's, you know, we were the first country to declare a net zero carbon ambition. There are now over 120 countries that have done that, providing that political backdrop for the real economy, which then the finance can actually innovate into and support. 
Um, we did set up our green investment bank. Obviously, we then sold it to a private a private investor, which many people look back and snigger because they're like, well, perhaps that we shouldn't have done that and we should have kept it. And I think as environmentalists, we'd probably agree um, that there was definitely a role to continue with the Green Investment Bank. But from a pure markets practitioner perspective, the government put out almost £4 billion worth of balance sheet. They created an entire offshore wind market where now 40% of global offshore wind is sitting around the British coastline. And then they flip their investor investment to a private investor. So obviously now we should be looking to do it again, set up another net zero carbon bank, something that we've been calling for at the Green Finance Institute, um, with, the, with the view of crowding in private capital in the way we've done in the offshore wind market, which is now entirely um, financed by institutional capital. Um, so very much focusing on financing green. And even though we're talking about global mobilization of capital, what we also need are local solutions. Local solutions about legislation, local solutions about finance mechanisms. And I think that all needs to be done in a very collaborative way. And I think if we can crack the code on some of this in the UK, then that's something that we should be sharing uh, globally. Great. Thanks, Rimmery. Uh, I think that's a good, good first round. We've got serious structural problems. I think we've all heard we've got to correct markets, some examples uh, already from the EBRD. We've got new mechanisms coming out, green bonds and, and many others. I love this idea of a, of a net zero climate bank in the UK. Um, let, let's make sure that happens by November. I think that's, that's good. Uh, there'll be a very good report coming out from the LSE, from the Grantham Research Institute, suggesting something kind of similar tomorrow. Um, and uh, we, so we've got some, got some energy. I would like to come back to what you were saying earlier a little bit, uh, Anne. Uh, the G7 finance ministers were on the phone at lunchtime today talking about the coronavirus. Um, and we've seen, obviously, markets responding over the last, last week. Uh, they've picked up a, a little bit since. Um, but there has clearly been a supply-side shock to the economy, um, and people are now talking about having to sort of think about a stimulus. Do, do we need a, a green stimulus? People were thinking about this, doing this back at the time of the credit crisis. And, uh, how do you read the moment? Because we're not in normal times now. It's not, we're not in a normal time. In a sense, what do we do in the face of this particular incident around the coronavirus? Uh, is that something that, that we should... Well, I mean, what's very interesting about this crisis is that it, it's shaking up the current dogma, which, which you know, uh, is about monetary radicalism and fiscal conservatism. And I think what we'll see now is an understanding that actually monetary policy and fiscal policy have to work in tandem, and they have to support each other. They cannot be separated in the way that that has happened in, in, in the 10 years, 12 years since the global financial crisis. I think the urgency of today's crisis has meant that finally uh, governments are beginning to understand this and get this. And they'll have to do this because actually, you know, fiscal policy will solve monetary policy's problem and monetary, po monetary uh, policy can solve fiscal policy's problem. That's, that's really the joy of the developed monetary system that we just have refused to use in these last 12 years. So that's on the one hand. The other thing that's interesting about the what's happening at the moment is the deglobalization. This little virus is deglobalizing the economy, the global economy. And I mean, that was a process that was already in play. Uh, you know, Donald Trump is a representative of an anti-globalization movement in the United States, Modi in India, uh, 
uh, Orban in Hungary and so on. These are all anti-globalization, supposedly anti-globalization leaders. And they were beginning to break up the system and, and develop protectionism and so on. This is going to make it uh, accelerate the process. And the question is whether or not that is going to be a chaotic process whether it's going to be managed. And I suspect it's going to be chaotic, and rather than making things better, it's going to make things worse. And we saw that happen in the 1930s. We saw that happen in the 1930s, where there was a terrific reaction against globalization, against government by private market forces, against government by market forces that strip people of their ability to go to university, to buy a home, to have a roof over their heads, to have health care, and so on and so forth. When that happened, people reacted and demanded protection from a strong man, invariably, occasional woman, um, and that made things worse. It didn't make things better. And I think the, the pandemic is going to make things worse too because it's going to make people more protectionist, more inward-looking, more uh, anti-immigration and so on and so forth, and, this is, uh, uh, and more protectionist, and that's going to be dangerous. So it's a dangerous moment. And, and the reason it is so dangerous is that we have no global leadership. There's a vacuum of global leadership. There is no, the United States is not playing that role. Europe is not playing that role. And Britain is turned in on itself and is worrying about Brexit and, and nationalist problems and, and nationalist project. And there is not a, an international leader that would, could bring this together. And for me, that's one of the biggest threats that we face at the moment. So, so very troubling times. I mean, again, very different geopolitical situation with the last crisis. Yeah. Um, but we, perhaps we have fragments of this. Steve, you and I were on the European high-level expert group, mm. and we now have a European Green Deal, which has been set out. Um, China has been very ambitious on, on green finance. Other countries have come behind. I think, uh, Marie, you were talking about 50 central banks uh, coming together. What do you see about the potential for an international coalition? Maybe it won't be the US, but a coalition of countries coming behind uh, an ambitious program around finance and this area. Thank you for the question, Nick. So the, I know that we, before, in the preparatory session, we were saying how hard it was going to be to find a source of disagreement. I think we might just have found a tiny scintilla of disagreement between Anne and I. <laughs> I, I think there's, there's many things that one can accuse the, the European Union of, of doing, but the, in this case, I think the Green New Deal and Ursula von der Leyen's approach, it does seem to me to be pretty phenomenal. And the particular thing that I was very pleased to be part of with Nick was this high-level expert group that created the Sustainable Finance Action Plan and FISMA, the Financial Services and Markets Director, owning that under Valdis Dombrovskis. That wouldn't have happened yes. if it wasn't for Brexit. Funnily enough, that's the, the silver lining in the very dark Brexit cloud. <laughs> we, we were the commissioner. Uh, Lord Hill was in charge of FISMA and resigned because of the Brexit vote. Within two weeks, uh, Valdis Dombrovskis came in and in, in his maiden speech said, I will make the capital market union sustainable and then created the high-level expert group, the Sustainable Finance Action yeah, Plan. You're right about that, and I agree with that. But I'm still not sure that the European Union, and, and it's very impressive, I agree, with what they've done, but are they exercising global leadership? Will they bring ah, people right. that's that's a very interesting point. So they, they have just about created the international platform in sustainable finance. 
Um, and I, it, it actually, it's, it's led to an idea, I think. So if, if at COP26, I think mm-hmm. this is perhaps where you're yeah. encouraging me to head, there, is, there, are, there are many bodies that, that, that look at climate finance at the moment, but we miss something that is a space where multilateralism can meet capitalism. Uh, we, we had the, the um, World Bank had a go a few years ago at the G20 um, in Buenos Aires, and then Jim Kim brought companies and investors together with the you know, uh, prime ministers, presidents, and uh, some central banks. And that, that investor forum looked promising, but obviously David Malpass now is in charge of the World Bank, and I can say what you probably can't, which is that he is definitely not taking a leadership position on, on the climate agenda. So we need to create something. Mm-hmm. We need to create, I think, we talked about it in many different ways, but there's the task force in climate-related financial disclosure, so, so you could call it a climate finance task force, or we've got the, the intergovernmental panel on climate change, so I was thinking about maybe an international panel on climate finance, but whatever you call it, somewhere where the Bretton Woods institutions can meet with the UN, can meet with sovereign wealth funds that have got 30, 40 trillion, pension schemes that have got roughly the same again, uh, banks that have got 70 odd trillion under management, and then so on and so on. We need a place where the people with money can talk to the people that need money and create a capital raising plan for the planet. If you were the finance director for a company, your job would be, how do I raise money to finance the growth of this business at the lowest cost possible? We don't have a finance director for the planet that can, finance, that can create that plan. I'm sorry. Can I just come back on that? Mm-hmm. So I agree with that. The problem is that the, 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 the point you've just made, Steve, is that, you know, that, that will provide the finance at an affordable rate, essentially. Hmm. And the market is not going to let that happen. The market is going to demand returns that are unsustainable in ecological terms, but also in financing terms. I mean, and governments don't really need the market. We don't need those savings, those existing savings, because we have a monetary system in, in Britain. We have a developed monetary system that can actually create the finance that we need. That's, Malawi doesn't have that. Malawi doesn't have a developed monetary system, and there are other countries in the world that don't have that. But we have a very privileged, well-developed monetary system, which enables us to create the finance needed to address crises. So we don't really need you know, asset management funds to give us the money and, and, and to go to them and ask for the money. But if we did go to them and ask for the money, they would demand, they would demand returns, they would demand conditions that would actually be expensive for governments and would be expensive in terms of the ecosystem because it would demand the extraction of, of assets you know, to, to generate the returns to repay. Your response, Stephen, then we'll move on. Um, this is a fascinating conversation. It is, um, yeah. So I hope you think so. <laughs> I'm finding it fascinating. So, you, you say, so I, I, broadly speaking, clearly it's developing nations that need the capital, yeah. and we, that's, that's a, a well-known fact. It's yeah. your eyes on that. Now, it is, of course, a function of development that you end up with the markets and the capital in the developed economies. So one of the kind of... One of the things that I'm thinking of, this IPCF or whatever you call it, 
its function could be to help mobilise capital from developed countries to developing mm. at a rate that was affordable yeah. um, and that was priced accurately. There are all sorts of market norms that mitigate against that. Yeah. Like benchmarks, for example. Standard, benchmark, pe- standard pension benchmarks wouldn't include developing countries as a norm. So if you've got pensions and it's passive, it won't invest in this kind of area. So sure. we need to address this. Again, a scintilla of, of, of disagreement. You're right that, of course, we've got a developed market in the UK, and of course, the government can raise more debt. It, though, has a it has a credit rating, and many of the global governments are testing their credit ratings because of the financial crisis. And it is said that they've actually added to the the stock of debt by about 20 trillion because of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, the world's it's the quickest ever growth of debt um, since markets began. Yeah. So testing, no government is going to want to raise capital for a Green New Deal in a way that breaks their credit rating. That, that will make it just too, too expensive. So they do need pension schemes, they do need sovereign wealth funds, they do need insurance companies, because we buy the debt. It's yes, our and at the moment are paying negative um, rates for it. Sorry, sorry. we're going to have to move on. Not, not to move on. At the moment you're paying governments I, I, to buy their debt. I love this Lumber. disagreement, but we have another side to the panel. Um, thank you, Steve. Um, one other thing that you know, one other thing maybe that we might want to deal with in questions is one of the reasons why fund managers like invest like uh, Aviva need returns is got to pay people's pensions. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing about how we connect this to, to ordinary people's uh, savings. But one of the things, Giampiero, that I see the role of development banks is in this this agenda is moving the economic frontier and particularly doing dealing with some of the hard issues. So we know that some things are now in this agenda becoming relatively easy. Renewables is now becoming a relatively straightforward uh, business to, to finance. There are things which are much, much harder. Um, we have sectors which are crucial to the economy, iron, steel, cement, and so on. We have issues such as resilience. We even have the sort of building sectors and so on. So maybe it'd be good to get a sense of how do we get sort of finance and what is the role of development banks to sort of tackle some of those sort of hard-to-crack issues and what do we need to do in the next few months to make progress there? Thank you, Nick, for this question also because in a way it will help me address a bit also uh, Steve's point because I agree on the need of a multilateral uh, structures and, and, and instruments and more uh, systemic type of uh, initiative. At the same time, uh, we should not underestimate the role of more customized platforms and initiatives and partnerships. So this links to your question about the difficult sector to, to abate. You know, the, the story of transition, of climate transition, is not is not a story only of renewable energy and uh, green startups. It's very much a story of how we decarbonize the building sector, how we uh, uh, create uh, the, uh, the materials for, uh, for the low-carbon economy. So we need to bring in and we need to address uh, uh, what it means decarbonizing the steel sector. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think you know, more localized, more customized, more focused platform and partnership can be extremely mm-hmm. effective and useful. Uh, I'll give a couple of examples of you know, work that DBRD has been doing, uh, which has also been, uh, how to say, uh, uh, common to other, other multilateral banks. You know, we've been working on a low-carbon roadmap for the cement industry in, uh, in Egypt mm-hmm. with the idea to identify the technologies and the policies that can uh, facilitate, you know, create the conditions for investors to come in, create the level playing field for the industry, and identify you know, what are technologies that bring low risk from a climate perspective. Uh, and this has resulted in, uh, first of all, a, uh, 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 if you like, a coalition of the, uh, of the government, of the Ministry of Industry, 
the local association and the companies themselves. So they've been participating in this effort. There have been investments taking place, but more importantly, the government has uh, uh, come up with uh, uh, decrees that set minimum alternative fuel standards and minimum uh, cement to clinker ratio standards. Mm. So these are you know, uh, examples of how you can create synergies and collaborative approaches to address exactly what you are uh, what you're talking about. Another example is the work we do with, with local financial institutions. At EBRD, mm -hmm. we work with over 150 local banks. Mm -hmm. We've been working for uh, you know, 20 years in providing dedicated credit lines for financing SMEs energy efficiency, to financing you know, small-scale renewable energy. Now the, the next challenge is how we can work with this organization and introduce climate risk discipline, providing the tools to understand what Paris alignment means, and also to uh, 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 introduce, if you like, the uh, 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 understanding of how to manage climate risk in their portfolio. So this is the type of more you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, localized activities that I think are, are, can compensate, well, compensate, but you know, uh, integrate and complement the more systemic initiatives. Good. And, and Ria Marie, um, and then we'll come to questions. So get your, get your thoughts uh, ready. Remember, Giampiero uh, has just been talking about banks, and we've heard from investors, we've heard about macro development banks and so on. I mean, there are a number of big uh, commercial banks sitting here in London, um, big systemic banks, um, with international footprints uh, and so on. So where, how, do we, how do we sort of harness that? The number of these banks are under shareholder pressure, civil society pressure for financing fossil fuels and so on and so forth. What do you think is the sort of shift we can make or need to make in the next, next few months here in London? I'm trying hard to think of something I can disagree with Jean Piero about so that we have like nice symmetry across the <laughs> yeah. panel. But sadly, I, I agree with everything that he said because I think the answer to your question, Nick, is um, it's both about international collaboration, mm -hmm. but it is also about blending finance. It's about using government balance sheet and private capital to actually get returns that work for all parties. Um, the commercial banks are starting to move on this agenda. I mean, unfortunately, I think the average private capital that has been mobilized towards a clean energy agenda in the last two years averages at something like $529 billion per year, which sounds like a lot, but is clearly marginal in what we need to do. I love your idea of the intergalactic task force. <laughs> fantastic. But I think it balances the idea, you know, the TCFD has focused very much on financial stability, on disclosure, on risk and reporting. And our new task force could focus on how do we get the capital actually moving. Mm -hmm. um, and so as we come to COP, which is a part of the answer to your question, is how... How do we empower not just the banks but other companies that have multinational footprints to really have agency mm -hmm. to say this is what we see as best practice and this is what we want to use, use the COP and the diplomatic efforts in COP to say, you know, this is what we're willing to commit to and we actually want to work in <coughs> conjunction with government. I'd love to push the banks in the UK, for example, to say that they want mandatory TCFD disclosure mm -hmm. and even that at some point in the future they won't bank anyone who doesn't have TCFD disclosure if they're large enough organisations whether we can and then can use the diplomatic channels of the COP to then take that internationally and say that's the standard that we're setting 
if I had to answer one question about what I'd really like to see mm. come out of COP that I think would really move the needle, and, it, and I guess it touches on some of Anne's points about the coronavirus and other shocks that could that could actually lead to a step back in all the great momentum that we've got building on this agenda. Um, and that would be making sure that all the central banks make the banks do stress tests, climate stress tests, um, and make sure that that is deployed across as many central banks as possible, because I think that would really embed what we're trying to do, and it would be make, make it very difficult for us to, to not continue to build on the good work that we've been doing. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so, Grace, start off, I think, in a sense of why we need to change things and what we can do ahead of COP. Uh, it's now over to you. Um, as I say before, please uh, say your name um, and please give a short question. There will be uh, people with microphones. I'm going to take one from this block, one from that block, and one from this block. Um, and the man with the yellow T-shirt there with the purple. Um, and here, any women, please? Here, thank you very much. Next question there. And, and you, please, yes, with the grey shirt. Thank you. Um, please, that question there, then there, then back. Thank you. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, a lot of the... Your name, please. Uh, Niall Rudd. I'm, a, I'm just a builder. I don't do any Fantastic. special stuff. Great. We need you. <laughs> uh, a lot of the net zero talk seems to rely on uh, a lot of carbon capture, which kicks off in a big way. Um, in fact, it just goes and grows and grows towards the second half of this century, yeah. um, which makes it slightly easier to do the other side of the equation, which is reduce the uh, amount of carbon reduction we have to do if we've made this big promise that we're going to capture it all again. And I just think that seems like a cop-out. It's like, <laughs> okay. if there's no technology for it, as bankers and so on, shouldn't you establish the level of risk about that kind of plan and put the pressure back on the reduction side of things. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, question here, please. I'm Chloe Chen from EPRD, working the same team as uh, John oh. and also um, <laughs> alumni of uh, LSE. And so my question is, is, is encouraging to see um, increasing number of innovative financing instruments emerging in the market, try to mobilize uh, private capital to, to climate finance. But are we in danger of seeing or creating illusion of we're doing great, we're doing enough. Say, for example, if you look into the, the relatively new instruments of um, sustainability link loan, so there's like, what, 40 billion mobilized last year, but if you look into the details, like this loan is mostly for removing credit facilities, so companies or borrowers, they don't intend to draw down. Um, the, the margin induction is just a couple of bips. It doesn't create enough incentive for borrowers to do anything. And the KPI that I link to is just yes rating. So the illusion of progress. Like yeah, so, so progress. if you look at the press release, it looks great. But if you look in the details of the instruments itself, it doesn't seem to be creating any right. impact. So Thanks for the question. Um, there, please, in the, in the middle. Thank you. Hi, one my below, name. One before you, I think. Was that, did you, the, work, the lady there in front of you? Thank you. Hi, uh, sorry. My name is uh, Samia, a recent graduate from the University of London. Um, I'm just wondering if the panellists have a view on what Boris Johnson's views are and where this whole Brexit discussion is going. We are having a massive, you know, thing about equivalence and asset managers. We're, we're negotiating with 
the US, the EU, and that we are at a moment of geopolitical risk. So I'm wondering if you guys have any direction in regards to whether the UK will scale back on our commitments, or are we actually going to see more of this green finance agenda coming through? Because I believe that we are kind of siding with America's philosophy of we we're happy to see green investments, but it's, a, it's not a requirement. Um, it's, a, it's a preference, if you understand that kind of philosophy. Okay. Will UK scale back on, on green finance? Um, any, more, any more questions? Actually, maybe the gentleman behind you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. Uh, my name is Ahmed Waduda, ex-LSC undergraduate. did my undergrad and master's, yeah? So my question is, can this target work without America leading the charge, right. given the president believes... Um, COVID-19 is a hoax, so is climate change. And where do you see this leadership coming from? I don't think it's going to come from Europe and the UK now. And this international collaboration, how is it possible? On the one hand, you're talking about deglobalization, but this, at the same time, you want to have international collaboration to happen. So it's a, it's a contradiction. You know? So how, how can this happen? Fantastic. So, so four questions. One about uh, carbon capture. Uh, all the models rely on that. I see the picture rely on that. Uh, we, we're very busy on sustainable finance, lots of initiatives, lots of press releases, but is, are they creating an illusion of progress, I think? Uh, I think two quite linked questions about the UK, its um, situation in terms of negotiating trade deals, EU and, and US, and will the UK scale back on green finance? And then I think linked to that very much, thank, thank you for your question about so what's the role of, of, of the U.S.? Can we do this deal without the U.S.? Uh, and if not, um, who, who's going to pick up the baton? I don't know, Ria Marie, maybe if you want yeah, to I'm, I'm kick off on I think your first question about the carbon capture is part of a broader discussion about net zero pathways, which is something that I touched on earlier. From a finance perspective, I don't personally buy this argument, but you, we are hearing some of the financial providers, in particular the banks, saying we can only push our clients so far. They actually, we are there to finance what the clients ask us to do. I'm not sure that's quite right. But um, it's therefore, therefore the clients themselves, the real economy industrial actors, need to have clarity on their pathway to net zero. So I'm personally an optimist that I believe that the technologies, not just the carbon capture technology, the actual emissions reduction technologies will continue to be developed. There's been some fantastic work by the Energy Transition Commission, the ETC under Lauderdale Turner, that has looked at all the harder to abate sectors and concluded and looked at the different technology pathways, concluded how much it would cost. I think in the UK it looks like 1% to 2% of GDP over the next few decades, which is actually within the rounding errors of GDP forecasts. So I'm not saying it's not going to cost anything, but it's it's eminently doable, which I think is a point everyone on the panel was making. Um, but I, d I do think it's time that we actually came up with more sophisticated pathways and that we actually use both finance and industry to, to figure out what they look like and, and help inform the policymakers. Um, illusion of progress. Yes, the, the sustainability linked loans are now up to well over $100 billion of issuance in two years, which is fantastic growth in such a short period of time. I hear what you're saying. Um, are they really directing capital where they need to go? Is it a little bit of greenwashing? Um, possibly, but as someone that was a practitioner in one of the large banks, what I saw from green bonds and these types of instruments is they elevate the dialogue hugely. 
they actually make you know if you're the person that's having to make a decision about where you're allocating capital, um, you're the person speaking to clients. Then these are these are instruments that you actually need to start having the expertise in, and hopefully that will then enable more creation of smarter and even better and more innovative financial mechanisms, which actually will have the impact that we need. So I think that you know this is a disrupted market, and these are the first steps that we're seeing. Um, very, very quickly, green finance, are we going to continue with the commitment? This is an opportunity post-Brexit for the UK to show real leadership. The City of London is one of the largest global financial centres in the world, and this is an opportunity for us to build on a really proud tradition of green finance innovation and show and actually not go the other way and actually lean in even further. Um, can we succeed without the USA? This is a question that comes up all the time. Um, one of my favorite websites is one that's called We're Still In, and it lists every day all the different mayors and states and companies that, and actual academic institutions that are still signed into the Paris Agreement in the states and doubling down their efforts. Some of the, you know, California, what is it, the sixth largest economy in the world, has some of the most stringent environmental standards and some real innovation in green finance. So, yes what's happening at a federal level is just utterly depressing. Um, but hopefully, well, he won't be there forever. And, um, oh, come on, please. Um, and, um, and actually, it is, all is not lost in the US. A lot of the important legislation is done not at the federal level, but at the state level. Right. And so I think there's still hope. Okay, Gianpero, anything to add? Uh, very quickly, on carbon capture storage, uh, just to complement what Rian was just saying. Oh, go on, argue with me. Go on, no, please. no, not argue. No, actually, no, I think it, we should think more broadly about removals. It could be got different technology, different approaches. When we talk about CCS, I think there is a, you know, increasing evidence, and actually the work of the Energy Com uh, um, uh, Transition Commission uh, is, very, is very useful in this respect because it shows that Ultimately, the cost of CCS, or let's say the opportunity associated with CCS, is very much linked to the cost of renewable energy. So, in, in most markets, you will see that you know, with the declining cost of renewable energy, look at what is the latest uh, uh, auction in Qatar, you know, 14 uh, uh, US dollar per megawatt hour. So, with this price, CCS is not economically uh, attractive. So, it's not necessarily is a solution we look need to include in the in the menu. But whether it's going to happen uh, to the extent that was. Uh, projected even you know, a few years ago, it is questionable. Mm -hmm. On the real progress, the illusion of progress, and also on the leadership, which to an extent to me are a bit connected, maybe we should start looking at leadership elsewhere, not necessarily with governments and with uh, 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 the, the public intervention. I think most of the business now uh, is consciously aware that the low carbon transition is inevitable. So I think it's a, it's a matter of speed and, uh, and urgency, mm -hmm. but I think in the process, there are a lot of examples of leadership. In the cities, there's a lot of examples of leadership. So I think we should start looking at different models of leadership rather than necessarily, again, traditional source of leadership. Uh, on Boris Johnson, I don't, I, I'm not entitled to comment on, uh, on the UK policy, but what I'm just, again, reflecting on your comment, let's say, uh, considering the relevance of the financial industry in Britain and considering the systemic risk of climate, I cannot see... Uh, an, an alternative pathway other than convergence and embracing you know, the, the climate investments. Steve, this question of, of leadership, in particularly you work with many uh, investing organizations in the US, you know, big pension funds and, and, and so on, and they're among the group that's, that, that's still in. My sense is that 
governments are often not very courageous. And actually, if they get leadership from the financial sector, mm. then they actually might go further. So maybe you're, it'd be really interesting to see sort of where you see sort of leadership coming from um, in, the, in the next uh, few months to answer that question. Thank you, Nick. Can I do a little bit of an audience question back? You can. Just for a second. So I, I know at least one of you is going to say yes to all of this, but can you put your hand up if... Keep, there's three questions. If you know... If you have a pension and you know where that pension is invested and you know how your vote was used at the company AGMs that you own, and I know one of you can put your hand up. <laughs> okay. Question one. So the, the three questions, just to repeat them, were, do you have a pension? If so, keep your hand up if you know where it is. That's more than normal. That's pretty good. Now keep your hand up if you know how you voted. <laughs> so why should it just be the one vote in the US on that one person that matters? Shouldn't it be all of your votes at every company AGM that is supposed to shape how companies are working? That was how capitalism was originally designed a few hundred years ago. You would have walked into the Royal Exchange. You would have had cash. You would have put it on a table. They would have given you a stock certificate, a share certificate. You would have put it under your mattress or in a safe. You would have known what you owned and you would have voted at the AGM. The shareholder democracy is where the biggest democratic deficit exists. So the bit that gives me hope beyond this whole amazing conversation about um, the, the, the finance ministers and the central bank governors, the bit that gives me big, biggest hope is the Greta Thunberg millennial movement, mm -hmm. which is actually reminding people that we have a voice. And it's not just through how you consume, it's actually more how you invest. So we have 19 million customers in the UK alone. Imagine if they all rose up and put their money into this space. And before they voted with their feet and walked towards just a green fund, they voted with their vote at company AGMs. And one of the things we are suggesting is that every company be required to produce what's called a TCFD report. This is Aviva's here, third one. We're working on the fourth at the moment. The Task Force in Climate-Related Financial Disclosure is a voluntary piece at the moment. It should be mandatory, and there should be a vote to every company's AGM where we get to vote your pension on whether or not that report is any good. That's how you start to restore shareholder democracy. Imagine then putting that in an app where you could see what you owned at any given moment and then how your, how your pension was performing, because you obviously care about the finances, and then how is it performing on sustainability and how was your vote used? FinTech should be able to restore shareholder democracy. I hope it's coming, and we're working on it. But Nick, it's not can I yet just here. come back and add yeah, to something? Yeah. Um, starting in April, one of the programmes that I think a number of us are supporting this is Richard Curtis, the filmmaker, who was also the person that did comic relief here in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, he is, uh, I didn't know that, apparently everyone else knew that, but I didn't. Um, and he is focusing on, he spent the last couple of years figuring out what's the one thing, one campaign that he could use all his media savvy to support that would have the biggest impact and he chose pensions mm -hmm. and his new campaign make my money matter will be launching within a month i think and that's to try and educate the public at large about exactly what steve's just said that you have the power through your pension to try and actually move the dial on this whole issue. So I'm really excited about that and the fact that I think that's going to really change the dialogue around this topic. Thanks. And to finish, what gives you hope um, on this agenda? <laughs> well, what gives me hope is that we have, as societies, undertaken great transformations in the past until, and quite recently, you know, 
the ending of apartheid, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Berlin Wall, all of that shows that actually transformative change can happen. That gives me hope. But I want to come back to what Niall said, because I think Niall is right, that the net zero framing of this issue is a cop-out. Um, you know, I think banks shouldn't be listening to their clients. They should be listening to scientists. And scientists have told us that there's a grave urgency to what we have to do. We can't defer, use net zero to defer, A, the development of the technology, which, as we know, is a long way away, and B, net zero is about leaving it to future generations to deal with some of this. That is really irresponsible. And, and so we should be aiming for zero carbon and as soon as possible by 2030. And that's not me, that's people like Professor Kevin Anderson at the Tyndall Centre in Manchester. So, you know, we've got to respect the science and we also have to fear uh, the, the facts of it and the fact that, the, that it's a matter of urgency. I want to come back, if I may, Nick, to the question which was aimed at me, which was all of this about deglobalisation and yet um, wanting international coordination. For me, globalization is actually financial globalization. You know, we worry about the banks, we worry about the pension funds, we, we think we can do something about pension funds, but I have to tell you that they are very, very small beer, and I'm exaggerating a little here, but they are small beer relative to the total financial system. According to the Financial Stability Board, there's something like $376 trillion of assets out there, and they're managed by the sh shadow banking sector. And the point about the shadow banking se sector is that it's in the shadows, that it's beyond the reach of regulatory democracy. It's beyond the reach of public authority. So we might stress test banks on the high street, and we have done, and they've had to make all kinds of uh, adjustments, you know, to be stable, to, uh, to conform to central bank requirements. But actually, they really don't, are not the problem. The problem is out in the globalised financial system, which is beyond our control, which is the shadow banking. Now, having said that, you know, deglobalisation is probably something that has to happen if we're going to be, have policy autonomy and manage our own economies. We always will need international coordination. I'm an internationalist. The, the climate respects no boundaries. We have to talk to each other. We have to coordinate. But that's not globalization. That's international coordination. That is what we had before 1971 under the Bretton Woods system. We had a system whereby there was international coordination. Today, we have international co co coordination of central banks. But they coordinate to look after the finance sector, not after the rest of us. Great. <laughs> Thank you. We have gone over. We know that um, time is a non-renewable resource. But I'd like to ask you one final question. So if we could have, if you could pick up your pads again. <laughs> now, has any of the wisdom of this group, this panel, and your questions, has that led to any change? <laughs> I'm just pressing A all the time. <laughs> we have made a small improvement. Yay. A small improvement, 8%. <laughs> yes, come on, vote, vote early, vote often. Hope uh, is the biofuel fashion. Hope is the biofuel fashion. So, um, in one hour, we have changed um, uh, a significant slice of population. We've still got to move the, the majority, the 75%. Um, I would like you to ask you to thank my panel. I'd like you to...